I don't want to waste any time with an introduction, but I'm going to give you a little bit of data. I put up the Wikipedia page for Alistair McGrath. It's just the start. Um, uh, he, uh, uh, his middle name is Edgar. You would not have known that if I had not put this up for your edification. Um, uh, his birthday was fairly recent. You would not have known that, but for this. Northern Irish theologian, priest, intellectual historian, scientist, and Christian apologist. And that's just a warm-up. He's so much more than that. Currently holds the Andreas Idrius Professorship in Science and Religion in the Faculty of Theology and Religion at the University of Oxford. A professorship in science and religion. He's a professor of divinity at Gresham College. The position of, of professor of divinity at Gresham College has been around since the late 1500s. To put that into perspective, that's longer than Texas Tech University has been around. <laughs> he was previously professor of theology, ministry, and education at King's College London, head of the Center for Theology, Religion, and Culture, Professor of Historical Theology at Oxford, Principal of Wycliffe Hall at Oxford. He's an Anglican priest, a faculty member at Oxford. He's taught at Cambridge. He's a teaching fellow at Regent College. He holds three doctorates at the University of Oxford. He's got a Doctor of Philosophy in Molecular Biophysics, a Doctor of Divinity in Theology, and a Doctor of Letters in Intellectual History. He's noted for his work in historical theology, systematic theology, and the relationship between science and religion, as well as writings on apologetics. Now, all of you have been hearing about his apologetic work and his works on C.S. Lewis. I promise you, drop in the bucket. It's just the most recent drop, so it's the one we drink from first. Um, let's see. Uh, he's also known for his opposition to the new atheism, anti-religionism, his advocacy of theological critical realism. Among his best-known books, The Twilight of Atheism, The Dawkins Delusion, Dawkins, God, Genes, Memes, and the Meaning of Life, and A Scientific Theology. Numerous popular textbooks on theology. You can't go to a seminary where his books are not used as textbooks. You can't go to a Christian college where his books are not used for textbooks. You get him for free. That's pretty good, okay? <clears throat> no tuition charged here. Um, what I, the goal of today is, is to dialogue with him, depending upon how it goes. Uh, um, it depends on what we get into. Uh, I've got a number of things I'd like to personally probe him on in, in terms of theology and issues. But uh, while he's left himself at my disposal here, I'm going to try not to, to monopolize it with my own personal agenda, but try to ask questions that I think many of you would be genuinely interested in. So fasten your seatbelts, put your tray tables up, because we're about to take off. Um, professor, tell us a little bit about yourself. <laughs> Tell us about your family. Uh, fill us in. Well, um, I'm Alistair, uh, and I'm married to Joanna, and we have two grown children, Paul and Lizzie, and they're both married. And in the last year and a bit, we've had two grandchildren, two grandsons, Seb 
and Theo. Oh. So I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I had been more force, if I had had greater foresight, we have a marvelous internet ministry. This is actually being live simulcast, uh, a live feed on the internet. Your wife uh, uh, and children could have been watching you right now brag <laughs> on the grandchildren. By the way, he told me his one request from home was that he take back Stetson hats for the two toddlers. And it's the one thing I've not managed to do while he's been here this weekend. And he flies out like immediately after church. So if you can think of any place where we could get two infant toddler Stetson hats, please uh, jot it on a piece of paper and pass it up to me quickly. Um, what um, we, we, we've got the, the, the Wikipedia page up there. What do you do for fun? Do you do anything for fun? I love walking and, and walking hills. It's just great. I mean, the, the fresh air, you see wonderful sights, stretch your legs. You know, that to me is just great. And walking with people is even better. Really? So when you walk, do you, when you're walking by yourself, you contemplate the world, you contemplate nature, you pray, you laugh. What, what, what goes through your brain? And sometimes think, oh, I must write this down. It goes in the next book. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you, do you actually jot notes? While yes, I, I carry a little notebook and pen around with me because I sometimes think quite good thoughts, but half an hour later I've forgotten what they were. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, you had told us this morning in your sermon about going to college uh, as an atheist. Yeah. Um, you grew up in Northern Ireland. What is it about your upbringing that... that caused you to be an atheist? Did you grow up yeah. with a, in a home or was it? Well, I think there were two things. I think one was I was studying science really at high school. Uh, and I, I, I just gained the impression that science gobbled up the conceptual space once occupied by God. You couldn't be a scientist and a religious believer. And the other thing was that um, in Northern Ireland at that time, there were real religious tensions between Protestant and Catholic. And it seemed to me to be really obvious. If there's no religion, there's no religious violence. In fact, let me tell you a story. This is a true story, okay? There was this Englishman. He went to Belfast in Northern Ireland one night. And um, he uh, came back dangerously late to his hotel. And he was accosted by a gang of thugs with baseball bats. And they looked at him and they said, are you a Protestant or are you a Catholic? Now, the man realized that the answer he gave might be significant. <laughs> uh, so he had a brainwave. He said, "I'm an atheist." They looked at him for a minute, and then he said, "Are you a Protestant atheist?" Or <laughs> <laughs> so those two things, really, science and religious violence, that seemed to me to clinch the deal. Okay, what what caused you to go to Oxford? Why Oxford? Out of uh, all you know, I, lo I love chemistry, and the best school for chemistry in the UK was Oxford. So it just seemed to me if I could go there, that's where I was going to go. Did you have a path of you know your Paul? You you referenced Paul in your yeah. sermon in, in the opening and in conclusion. Paul's on the road to Damascus to arrest Christians. He had a purpose, his own purpose in his life. Did you have? A, a direction you thought you were headed when you went to get your chemistry degree? My thought was I would simply be a research scientist, but I didn't think any further than that. And really, it was just um, I expected my time at Oxford to confirm my atheism and, in effect, to launch me on a career doing scientific research. As far as I was concerned, that, that was it, really. I, I love the passage in Revelation where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if you would open the door, I'd come in and, and sup with you. Um, 
when did you first begin sensing or hearing a knock? I think just before going to Oxford, I, I was reading lots and lots of books in preparation for going. And I just came across things that unsettled me, that made me think, actually, maybe science isn't as simple as I thought. Maybe, actually, there, there is more that needs to be said. Maybe atheism actually might not be right. But I suppressed that thought because I found it was dangerous. I thought I didn't want to go that way. But nevertheless, you know, the seeds of doubt were there. But what happened at Oxford was they, they fell into fertile f- soil and began to grow. Oh. And were, the, the Oxford education is very different than an American university. So I, I think one thing that may help us is for you to explain what an Oxford education is like. Oxford at, at that time, and in fact, it's still the way today, you have input through lectures, but the main teaching is through tutorials, which usually is someone meeting for you with you for an hour a week where you read an essay and you get critiqued. And it's a way of helping you to write, help you develop your ideas, and check out you've really understood things properly. And, and that was very challenging. I, I wasn't used to that, but actually it really made me up my game. So in an American school... Where our kids, we've got a daughter at Baylor right now, and she gets all excited about signing up for her classes next semester. Here's my schedule. Here are these classes I take. Y'all don't do that at Oxford. That's not typically not what's done. You don't. No, basically you you choose what you're doing, and everything's then predetermined for you. Okay. Okay. And you would meet with these tutors. Did you encounter people who? God used to move you to faith, or did you simply come there through God using writings and books and thinking and the move? Give us some It was a little bit of both. I mean, one of the things I noticed was that there were students at Oxford who were studying sciences, my science, and who were clearly Christian and clearly had thought things through, and were able to actually give very good answers to the questions I was raising. I began to think, you know, maybe, maybe I've got this wrong, you know. And, but more than that, I was also um, listening to talks. I was also reading books. I think what, what happened was I began to really to realize two things. One was that atheism wasn't the big deal I'd thought it was. Actually, it was a faith, not fact, a very important point. And also, it, it actually, when all was said and done, wasn't very interesting. But also, uh, and um, you have heard this in the sermon this morning, I began to realize that Christianity gave, gave you this way of thinking. If it's right, well, it's, it's wonderful. And I began to realize a thinking person could be a Christian. And that thought actually really did change everything. So if you like, there are two things happening. Begin to think atheism is not that good. Christianity sounds very exciting. So you can see where this is going. You know, in effect, I was moving from one faith to another faith. And that really what happened in my first year. You continued on your course for chemistry. I did. You get the chemistry degree. You stay along all the way up through a doctor of philosophy in molecular biophysics. Uh, By the way, some people want to know, what is molecular biophysics? It's kind of where things like how biological systems work at the very micro level. All right. So um, you get a degree in molecular biophysics. Uh, I've actually read one of your peer-reviewed articles uh, that you published as a scientist fairly soon after getting that that degree. And then somewhere in there, you make a very 
deliberate decision to pursue further education in theology and Christian thought. Tell us about that journey. Well, what happened was that uh, when I got converted, uh, I began to realize, look, here's my science. Here's my faith. Now, I love science, and I'm coming to love faith. These need to talk to each other. And so I, I was trying to figure out how on earth I could do this. I think that one of the things that helped me was some uh, people who had already done some thinking in this area. But really, I began to realize if I was going to do this properly, I was going to have to take a degree in theology. So I won a scholarship at Oxford, um, what's called a senior scholarship. And I read the conditions of the scholarship very, very carefully. And it said you can either use the scholarship to do a doctorate or a second first degree. So I was very, very cheeky. I went to the committee that organizes and said, can I do both at the same time? So they, they, they hummed and hawed, and then they said, okay, do it. And, and they obviously expected something awful to happen. But basically, what I was doing was, um, in the, um, particularly in the evenings, I was doing my scientific research. In the rest of the day, I was doing a first degree in theology. So actually, I was doing two things at the same time, which is not good for your social life, I will say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is this before Joanna? or is Before this... Joanna. Okay, yes. all right. Um, uh, so you, you, you walk through this journey. You, you clearly are working hard, burning both ends of the candle. Um, uh, and you get the degree in theology. You didn't stop there. Why a third doctor degree, a doctor of letters? Well, what I wanted to do was to make sure I really had mastered theology. And the only way you can do that really is by doing research. So what I decided to do was to keep on um, doing theological research, publishing articles, writing books. And Oxford allows you to have a degree by publications, which is a doctor of divinity. And so that's how I got that second doctorate. And then, of course, a doctor of letters very much the same way. But it was very much saying, I've got to establish myself as being credible as a research scientist, credible as a theologian, before I can begin to make connections between them. So if you like, it was very much saying, look, I, I need to make sure I really can speak with authority in both of these areas before I try to make connections between them. We, we've got uh, at the library uh, over 91,000 volumes right now. And we pulled your books out so that we could look at them, and the shelves were half empty. <laughs> um, <clears throat> you have written, I, I'll bet you've written more books than you can remember the titles of. So I want to ask you some questions about them, okay? I get to play gotcha. What's your favorite book you've written? The Biography of C.S. Lewis. What makes that your favorite? Um, because it took a long time to research, and I felt I was actually really getting inside his head. And also, I mean, a friend of mine started writing a biography of somebody and actually gave it up because they found he was so awful. But actually, I, as I wrote that biography, I, I found myself admiring Lewis more and more. Actually, I felt he'd been dealt a pretty bad hand in life, but actually he really rose above it. So I found myself appreciating him more as a person, but also as a writer. Lewis passed away in 64? 63. 63. That's right. Same day as John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Um, that means you would have been 10 years old. So uh, uh, obviously never met him. But you and he had a several common threads in your history. Well, we do. I and mean, we were both born in Belfast. 
and we both grew up in Northern Ireland. We were both atheists as teenagers, and we both discovered faith at Oxford. So there is quite a sort of um, shared similarity there. But there are differences too. I mean, Lewis writes beautifully, and, and he's very much into the humanities. I, I write more functionally, and, and I'm more into the sciences. But certainly there is some, some similarity there, I think. Uh, well, as someone who reads both, Lewis and McGrath, um, uh, I'll tell you, I think you write beautifully. Uh, uh, My you're, friend. You're, <laughs> you're, 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 you're humble there. But I want to tell you, he writes very beautifully. Now, what I don't know about you and your writing is this. Um, we've got at the library one of C.S. Lewis's um, uh, lectures he gave. It was a, uh, uh, I believe it was a welcome to the incoming Oxford class uh, uh, in the early stages of World War II, uh, a very important time to welcome the class because a great number of those people would never actually finish their degree. They would be called in military service, and ultimately a number of them would lose their lives. And Lewis, I think, was perplexed to give a, a, an incoming student address where he would recognize, and the students all recognized, why am I going to Oxford to study when the world's turning upside down and, and, and I may never finish the degree? And, and it's, a, it's a very important address that Lewis gave. And we've got, Lewis did not type. He, we've got his handwritten address. And Professor McGrath was in town looking at it a few years ago. And he pointed out to me, I don't know that you remember this. It's in passing for you in your life, but it was a significant thing to me. He pointed out to me, he said, Lewis wrote beautifully, but look at his address. He edits very little. He's able to write beautifully in a first draft. And I thought, that's, that's an incredible point. My question to you is, do you edit much? <laughs> I need to edit a lot. <laughs> I, I have a friend called Jim Packer who's at Regent College in Vancouver, and... Um, Someone was trying to explain to Jim Packer um, how computers worked and how word processes worked. And they said, this wonderful thing called edit feature, you move blocks of text around, things like that. And Jim apparently replied, well, actually, I just don't need to do that. <laughs> but uh, I certainly do. I certainly do. And I think that um, I, I, what I tend to do is, is it's, it's like... Um, you know, you're putting something down, like a wine or something, and I'll start writing something, I'll come back to it, I'll rewrite, I'll come back to it again and again. And sometimes the final draft doesn't look much like the first draft at all, but it's just a process of emergence. And actually, I find it quite therapeutic. You know, I, I quite enjoy editing. Okay. Um, are there any books that you've written where you say, ah, I wish I had done that? Where you could like call it back and rewrite it, or or you've changed, or moved, or grown anything, anything where you were wishing uh, you you could uh, hit the recall button. I think every author sometimes finds that they publish a book, and as it's in press, another book appears, which actually either makes the same points or even better than yours. And you think, oh, why did I publish that? It's out of date before it even hits the shelves. So there is a bit of that. But also, I mean, some of my earlier books, I think perhaps I wrote rather hastily. And one of the things I've learned is you really got to take time over this. That actually you've got to look at expression. You've really got to look at structure. So that's something I've learned to do more later. So some of my earlier books are not as good as they could be. I try to make the later ones better. An another uh, friend of yours and, and friend of ours who 
will be at the library to speak in the end of March uh, for a return visit is Tom Wright, N.T. Wright. Uh, uh, by the way, a, a marvelous New Testament scholar whose initials are appropriate, N.T. Wright, <laughs> New Testament Wright. And his son's initials are O.T. Wright. So you've got the New Testament and the Old Testament, and it's all right. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, Tom said to me, or, or I heard him sp- say uh, one time, um, he said, books are like children. You conceive them. You nurture them. You get them ready to go out on their own. And then you send them forth. And once you send them forth, they make their own friends. Some of the friends you approve of. Some of the friends you don't approve of. They almost take on a life of their own. And it's interesting to re-engage later and find their friends. And and find out what their friends think of your children, your books. And and your friends see things in your books that you didn't know were there. And sometimes... With that picture analogy... How have you, how has your relationship to the world been changed because the world interacts with the books of Alistair McGrath? I think that I get an awful lot of messages from people. Um, tend to say, number one, we disagree with you. Number two, can you explain what you meant here? But most of them are simply saying how much they enjoyed the books. And I, I really love that. And the, the downside of that is it makes me want to write more books. So this is not good. In fact, my, my wife, who's a psychologist, Joanna, um, basically, I think if she were here, she, she might say, I think you're addicted to writing books. But I mean, if I am, there are worse things you can be addicted to. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, okay, so one of the things that and I've got to keep us on pace here, we've got 25 more minutes, and I'm sorry, all of you are going to want to visit with Professor McGrath as soon as this is over and British Airlines has told us they will not hold his flight. So he and I will be rushing out of here. We can down some soup in him and get him to the airport quickly. And uh, uh, I apologize in advance. His desire uh, is to be able to stay and to visit till all of you are ready to leave. But that cannot happen. I must get him immediately out of here. So if I'm not asking the questions you would like to ask, uh, we'll get him back in another couple of years, and uh, God willing, and uh, you can write it down in advance. Um, all right, I want to shift. I want to talk about theology okay. for a while. Uh, that's where I first met you, uh, and, and by you, I met you through your books. Uh, I was reading through your theology books. What is it that drew you to theology, uh, and, and why is theology important to us? Well, I think um, Christianity is a very rich faith and speaks to us at multiple levels. It engages with our imaginations. It it speaks deeply to our hearts. But I think it also speaks to our minds. And um, I keep coming back to that that very powerful statement of Christ. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And really, theology is loving God with all your mind, trying to get your ideas sorted out. And um, I suppose there's a discipleship of the hands and a discipleship of the heart, but there's certainly this discipleship of the mind. And for me, theology is trying to get our ideas about God right, or at least the best we can. Was there any part of theology you found particularly engaging, where you thought, you know, I just might stay here and and dwell on this for a while and and really uh, uh, try to learn this 
as thoroughly as I can. I really enjoyed um, engaging with the thought of people like Martin Luther and John Calvin in the 16th century. And I, I think that that really brought home two things. Number one, this is relevant to the life of the church. And number two, because these guys made such connections with theology and the life of faith, spirituality, that this actually, when it's done properly, nourishes the heart as well as the mind. So I felt this is something I'd like to know more about. So I, I really invested very heavily in this, and actually I, I really enjoy doing this. How much, is, it's interesting to, to talk to you about this, because when you study theology, there are many different branches of theology. It's like studying medicine. And you can study medicine and be an obstetrician, or you can be a ear, nose, and throat doctor. You could be a, a dentist. You could be a, a surgeon. You could be a, a nephrologist. You could be so many different kinds of doctors. Within the world of theology, there are lots of different areas to study. There's the soteriology. There's eschatology. There's uh, just uh, countless bran uh, branches of, of theology. Um, and a lot of theologians that you talk to will say, well, you know, I really specialize in the theology of, of salvation and, and how we understand it, soteriology, and, uh, uh, or I'm a systematic theologian trying to understand how things fit together. And, and, and yet, when I talk to you, frequently you think about things in terms of people. So you mentioned the theology of John Calvin or Martin Luther, or you speak of C.S. Lewis, or you speak of... Um, why do you think you engage so much in people? I think I, I, you're right. I do engage with people. Um, and one of the reasons for this is I, I love seeing how people are transformed by the ideas they hold. In other words, someone like Martin Luther, who has this wonderful vision of the idea of justification by faith, the difference that makes to the way he thinks and the way he acts. In other words, it helps me realize that theology is not just kind of way abstract ideas. It's about ideas that animate you and, and make you who you are and give you purpose and direction. So for me, a good theologian is someone who actually shows that these ideas change the way in which you think and the way in which you live. So that's one of the reasons why I find looking at individual theologians so exciting. I, I, somewhere in here, you also... You clearly have a heart for people. I mean, what a lot of people may not know is in addition to all of these other things, you can go and you can find Alistair McGrath oftentimes preaching at churches in England, not the huge, massive mega churches. He will go into the smaller towns where the churches have a very small attendance and he will preach and he will minister and he will, will, will touch the lives of people. And, and there aren't a lot of theologians and writers and Christian thinkers who will so readily engage in everyone that they meet. It, it, have you always been that way, or is this something well, God's cultivated? Let, let me tell you what I think. I mean, I mean, I see myself as someone who understands Christianity reasonably well. And I see myself as someone who, who really, therefore, has a responsibility of helping ordinary Christians to think through what's this all about, what difference does it make? 
And I, I love ministering to congregations because it grounds me. You know, it makes me think, how is this going to affect the way this person's living? How does it help them cope with this situation? So it's very good for me. It forces me to, to think myself into somebody else's situation and also to make those connections in a way they can understand. And that, that's really important for me. It keeps me on my toes. It stops me from being lazy and complacent. In that regard, what do you do to stay plugged into modern culture? Because you do learn, and uh, you, you, you are not in an ivory tower. Uh, you, you may go up there for a while, but you come back down and you actually uh, uh, engage in modern culture and, and are able to speak the language of, of your community and, and people around you. How do you do that? Well, you talk to people and, and you find out what's on their hearts, what they're worried about. You, you watch TV and you find out what people are worried about there. You watch soap operas and, and you very quickly get an idea of the language people are using. I want a video of Alison McGrath watching soap no, operas. No, no. Well, it might be it's like this. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I mean, you say, right, these people are using this language. It's not my language. I've got to learn that language. Otherwise, I won't be able to connect with those people. So, in effect, you're, you're becoming bilingual. And it's a very good discipline. It's not something I would do normally, but I think it matters. So I do it. Okay. So in that regard, um, like, what's your favorite TV show? <laughs> well, <laughs> I love uh, I love these American box sets. Uh, I really enjoy those. I think they're great. Really? Oh, yeah, House of Cards is one of my favorite. Don't know if any, any of you watch uh, that. House really. of Cards. Anybody watch House of Cards? Yeah, yeah, it's good. Yeah, it, yeah. It's okay. Very interesting. Okay. Yeah, so, uh, All right. Um, and you watch the Wallander yeah, uh, series. Yeah, that's right, yes. Because you and I have discussed those and you, and you read those books. Um, the people may find it interesting. Have you always loved to read? Yes, Um when I was ill, I, I, I used to get quite ill, and so I had to go to bed quite a lot. And, of course, what could you do but read? Uh, I just found that reading was something very, very natural. I really enjoyed it, and I keep doing it, and it's a wonderful way of relaxing. We've got a lot of people in here who are readers, um, uh, and I've learned people read differently. Some people are slow, careful readers. Some people read with uh, uh, blinding speed. Uh, some people remember everything they read. Some people grab things they like. How do you read? I can read in two ways. Um, one is speed reading, which I do very, very quickly. It's when I'm reading a book, trying to find out what the arguments are. And I can read a book in 15 minutes. Okay? But then, no, no, there's another way of reading, which is you press the slow button. And the slow <laughs> button is, I'm going to enjoy this. And so you, you take it slowly. You enjoy the style. You really enjoy characterizations. And actually, that's what I do when I'm reading novels. When I'm reading textbooks, that sort of stuff, you're reading quickly. You're looking for the ideas, but very often you read to enjoy. And that's what I really like doing. Ah, very good. Um, when you write, do you write with the idea that people will speed read or people will read with joy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good one. <laughs> Um, one thing I learned from C.S. Lewis is this. C.S. Lewis said that actually you've got to ask the question, how will this sound when it's read aloud? Uh, and actually, you know, if you're a preacher, you're doing it all the time. You're saying, now, how is this going to sound? And actually, I, I tend to do that. It's almost as if I'm reading something aloud to myself. How does this sound? And then I, if I like it, I'll write it down. So actually, writing can be quite slow because you're... You're, you're trying to get the pauses right. You're trying to get the, the sounds right. Trying to get the sentence length right. So actually, it's, it's great fun to kick these things around, see where they end up. Um, speaking of Lewis, you, you clearly had an interest in him from early on. 
but somewhere your interest uh, kindled into quite a, a, a flame, um, and and you've spent a lot of time and energy on Lewis in the last uh, ten years or so. Um, what was it that precipitated this this corner of of you really going down Lewis Lane with 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 great intensity? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I mean, I mean, you know, when you when you come to faith, you you're looking for people to help you. We, I mean, we all do that. We find traveling companions who will help us to think things through. And Lewis was one of my traveling companions in my early stages of faith, and I liked him uh, and I enjoyed reading him. But that was really the level it stayed at. And then I think it was probably um, at Oxford in the 1990s when I was teaching a course on theology and began to realize, actually, Lewis says some useful things that could be developed further. And I began to go deeper. And then um, in 2006, I got a new job in London. And um, they promised me lots of research time. And I sort of began to think, look, I want a big project. And I thought, Lewis's 50th anniversary of his death is coming up in 2013. I've got plenty of time to research him properly if I were to write a new biography. So in effect, I gave myself the space to really do that properly. And actually, that, that I think is one of the reasons why it's my favorite book. I really was able to read him properly and do justice to him. Yeah, the research that Alistair did, I remember I was driving him to the airport one time, and I was talking to him about it when he was in the middle of this research. And I want to probe all of y'all. How many of y'all have either read or uh, uh, um, at least seen a, a film adaptation or something, somewhere touched a writing of C.S. Lewis? Okay, how many of you would say you've read at least five books of C.S. Lewis? Okay, how many of you would say you've read at least 20 books of C.S. Lewis? Okay, couple, couple. How many of you would say you've read everything C.S. Lewis ever wrote, including his writings on medieval and Renaissance English literature, and his translations of medieval works. Okay, we lost you. No, not me. I'm, I'm, uh, but Alistair. Professor McGrath, when he was researching, he took all of the writings of C.S. Lewis, even researched some of his letters, all the rest, put them in chronological order, and read them. So he got C.S. Lewis from early to C.S. Lewis, uh, closing the door on this life. Read it all, and then proceeds to write on the life of C.S. Lewis. There is no scholar alive today that knows C.S. Lewis, I'm convinced, as well as Professor McGrath. So with that, I've got to ask you some of our C.S. Lewis questions, okay. since he's not here, um, to answer. What is it about Lewis you particularly love? Can you isolate a few things? I think Lewis is brilliant in giving what is a rational defense of Christianity, which is more than abstract argument. He uses beautiful stories. He uses wonderful illustrations. And actually, A, it makes it a pleasure to read, but also what he's doing is appealing both to the reason and the imagination. And there are a lot of people who don't do that, and Lewis does it so well. So for me, that's one of his great strengths. Do you find, uh, did you find in your research that Lewis moved 
Well, let, let, let's background Lewis a little bit. He becomes an atheist. Then he becomes a theist, a believer in a, that there is some type of divine deity. Then he becomes a Christian. It's kind of a step, step, step. Um, help us remember, or for those who may not know, what seemed most compelling moving him to theism, and then what seemed most compelling moving him to Christianity. What seemed most compelling towards moving him from atheism to believing that there is a God was, I think, two things. One, the realization that atheism, I would use the word, isn't generative. In other words, it doesn't really produce new ideas. It's very static and very dull. But secondly, Lewis began to realize that if there is a God, that explains a lot of stuff. But interestingly, it, it didn't excite him really. It was more that this makes some sense. And then Lewis had this very famous conversation with J.R.R. Tolkien, which is all about the power of stories to capture the imagination and convey intellectual truth. And Tolkien made the point, which I suppose you and I would think as being very obvious, but Lewis hadn't really made this connection. He said, what Christianity does is tell a story that makes sense of every other story we tell. And once Lewis saw that, then it was not abstract God. It was much more the story of God's engagement with the world, salvation history, Christ. And suddenly, if you like, it was as if somebody had opened the door, turned the light on, it made sense. And, and it was a transformative moment. Okay, so just in our practical terms, uh, um, I've... My son-in-law is talking to someone right now who's willing to engage this idea that maybe there is a God, um, maybe are gods, maybe there's something beyond atheism. But then the the question that JT has is, you know, where would we next move in this dialogue to help him understand that it's the Christian God? That, that is, is, is real. Is there anything that you have to offer to help? Well, I, I think there's a lot we could say there, but here's one idea I've always found helpful, and that is to say, look, I, I believe in God. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that and the difference it makes. And I think it's that second point, the difference it makes, because a lot of atheists think believing in God is, in effect, adding one extra item to the list of things you think are real. And what you've got to try and do is say, no, 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 if this is real, it changes everything. It suddenly means that you're moving from no meaning to meaning. It's, it's, it's a massive transition. And what we need to be able to do is explain the difference this makes. You know, tell them stories about the difference it makes or, in effect, say, look, this means when I face uncertainty or suffering, this is the difference it makes. And what we've got to try and do is almost explain not so much faith itself, but the outcomes, the difference it makes to our lives. And you don't need to be very good with words to do that. You know, it's very much helping people to see that Christianity is not simply true, it's real. It actually is transformative. And the key thing I'd say actually to all of you here today is you don't need to feel you're very academic or good with words. You can just say, look, for me, the difference my faith makes is this. And actually, that will, that will bring home to people, this is a life changer. And that's the key point we need to get across. I know Beth is sitting there, and so it's in my brain. A number of you wind up tweeting and wind up uh, posting on Facebook comments about class and what have you. Uh, that's, that's very quotable. Christianity is not just true. It's real. 
I like that. That that needs to like go viral. Tagline: Alistair McGrath, ha- McGrath hashtag Biblical Literacy Class rocks. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, all right. So you you've got this um, uh, marvelous intellectual uh, relationship with C.S. Lewis. Is there anything about his writings that caused you trouble in the sense of you think, I wish I had a chance to fix this with him, or, or I wonder why he was thinking this, or something? I think there are points where I read Lewis, and I think, you know, I don't want to criticize him because he's a better writer than I'm ever going to be, but there are things there that I find difficult. I, I think some of the things he says about women in his writings might be better phrased, if I can just put it like that. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I mean, I, I think I see what he's trying to say, but it's not what he actually says. So that's one area. Also, there are some books of his which, uh, again, for entirely understandable reasons, are quite dense. Um, those of you who enjoy reading Lewis, I mean, you'll probably know that his, the two books that don't sell well are The Pilgrim's Regress, which uh, is a very, very early writing, but then um, a, a later work, um, which has just slipped my mind for the moment, is Lectures I Gave at Durham. Um, it's all about men without chests. It's kind of come back to me. Uh, um, I'm blanking on it. Abolition of, Abolition of Man. Yeah. Yes. I mean, they're both extremely important books, but they're dense and actually quite difficult to read. I understand why, but if you come to either of those from mere Christianity, you just feel you're stepping into a different world altogether. One of the Lewis books I read in high school was uh, The Screwtape Letters. Oh, yes. And uh, I was reading, and, and I just set my course to read a few a night, uh, almost treating it like a, a devotional. Um, I found it very disturbing. It really messed me up, and I quit reading it in the middle because I just didn't like what it was doing to my brain. Was there any part of Lewis where you thought, oh, i got to get through this real fast. I'm really not enjoying this. I think that the, the, the novels I would single out are what we sometimes call the science fiction trilogy. And um, uh, Hideous Strength, um, there are parts of it I find really quite difficult to read, partly because it's, it's just too turgid, but it's partly because it's quite disturbing. You know? And uh, it, again, I, I'm, I'm very happy to say this is me having a problem, not Lewis having a problem. But it, it just reminds you, perhaps, that, that Lewis may have been experimenting, trying out a new writing style. didn't work for me, but it might work for somebody else. Yeah. But then I say, hey, I mean, there's so many other things like Surprised by Joy, um, you know, Mere Christianity. Those are great. Uh, so I, 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 I forgive the books where I find difficulties. Okay, favorite Chronicle of Narnia. Which one? Well, for me, it has to be The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And actually, if sales figures or anything to go by, that's most people's pick. Okay, and why that? Uh, you, you told us some about it this morning. <coughs> that may have been the answer in your sermon. But, but what, what is it about that that you particularly like? Well, I, I mean, people here may, may disagree, but as I read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's almost self-contained. You know, it could end, and you'd still walk away and say, that was really good. Uh, in other words, you don't need to have the other Chronicles of Narnia. It, it ends so well. But I think the way in which Lewis builds up this discovery, you know, they talk about Aslan. Who is he? And the gradual disclosure of who Aslan is, what he's like, is beautifully done. 
and the descriptions of characters, the description of scenes, they're, they're lyrical points, and it's just a, a wonderful book to read and read again, I think. As a fan of, of all of them, uh, I'm particularly partial to The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Um, I find myself often in the duffel puds, the one-footed creatures that bounce around that are absolutely convinced that the master who has provided this stream that comes right by them so that they can draw water is trying to trick them into doing something that's surely messed up and they would be much better served by bouncing on their one foot several miles away to get their bucket of water, which half splashes out when they come back because that master cannot be trusted. And I found there uh, uh, such a graphic picture of the way we are with God who tells us very simply, here's what's best for your life, and it's not always going to be great, but this is what you need to be doing. And we so often think we know so much better than mm. him, and he must be trying to trick us. Um, do, you, do you find in Narnia any of the characters where you say, oh, that's, that's been me, that's, that's me? I think I do. I think sometimes I'm a bit like Mr. Scrub. Uh, going back to the Voyage of the Dawn Treasure. And you, all of you have read that book, uh, the very famous scene, which is sometimes called the undragoning of Eustace. You know, when in fact Eustace gets changed into a dragon. In other words, he, he becomes what he really is, actually. And then decides he doesn't like this very much. He would rather like to be Eustace again and tries to scratch off the dragon scales and discovers he's trapped uh, and is unable to break out of this. And then the marvelous scene where Aslan, in effect, scratches off the dragon scales, plunges into this healing well, and transforms them. It's a, it's a marvelous description of the transformative work mm -hmm. of grace, doing something we could never do. I needed that grace. I'm sure there are many here who'd speak of that. But Lewis used a visual image, which in effect speaks to us of our inability to change ourselves, but of God's ability to change us instead. Okay, trivia question for the class. What does C.S. Lewis have in common with the singer-songwriter Paul Simon? Okay, well, this isn't technically a legitimate question because it's just my opinion. So you'd have to be clairvoyant to have gotten the answer. But I find Paul Simon works, must work really hard. The first line of all of his songs is so engaging and it's so much better than than the rest of the song. You know, the Mississippi Delta was shining like a national guitar. I mean, what a, you know, he's just got these great first lines. The first lines of C.S. Lewis's Narnia books, at least, always the, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader is what you just reminded mm. me. There once, and I may have a word wrong, but cut me some slack. Okay, this is not rehearsed. There once was a boy named Clarence Eustace Scrub, comma, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. Yep. <laughs> I love that line. Okay, we are just about done. But, but uh, one of the things that I do at the end of, of class in my brain is uh, uh, I try really hard to leave us with something that makes a difference. It's something we can talk about over lunch. It's something that, that makes a difference with us at, at work or at home or at school. Um, what is God speaking in the life of Alistair McGrath right now? What lessons are you learning 
that you could, in a nutshell, translate into a lesson for us to take home so that we draw closer to the Lord? Well, one thing I have been thinking about, and you very kindly mentioned it was my birthday recently, uh, and I, I, I've been thinking, look, I'm getting old. Um, <laughs> uh, I know it's a relative term, but, you know, and I've got to ask questions like, what do I think I'm meant to be doing, and am I actually doing them? And if you like, I, I ju I've just taken the opportunity of, of each birthday as it comes to say, look, um, what do I think needs to be done that I could do, and am I doing it? In other words, challenging myself as to whether I'm getting lazy and complacent in my old age, or whether actually there are fresh things I should and could be doing to try and ask, you know, how discipleship works out in later life. So those are questions which I'm sure many here this morning are thinking about, but something I find myself also beginning to reflect on. You know, when I was young, you know, I just thought, oh, there's so much space to do the stuff I think I'm meant to be doing. Now I'm beginning to think, actually, that there isn't perhaps all that much space left, and I think there's still a lot to do. What should I be doing? And so if you like, it's just a challenge to myself to ask, what should I be doing, and what am I doing about it? Fantastic. So on that note, that's our point for home, I guess, for all of us to be asking that question. You know, I, I really was challenged by uh, Pastor McGrath this morning's uh, passage uh, in, in his sermon of whatever your story is, whatever God has brought in your life and my life, whatever history you've got, all of the good and all of the bad that needs redemption. Bad things you've chosen to do. Bad things that were done to you through no choice of your own. All that you've got and all that you are that brings you here today. God has for you and for each of us, for me, for Alistair, a direction and a purpose and a way to use us for the good of his kingdom. Our only question is, is here am I, Lord, send me. It's a question of willingness. It's a question of us engaging our minds and our volition uh, with a recognition that we're going to seek it out by his grace and, and enlightenment and then by his strength and power, do the best we can. So that's our challenge. Would uh, all of you join me and stand up and let's say a word of blessing over the class and then uh, you're dismissed and, and uh, I look forward to seeing you next week. I commence uh, the section of ending of the why I'm not, and I'll be talking about why I'm not Jewish, dot, 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 or am I? So, uh, Father God, we ask you in the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to bless all who are here. Father, clean out our ears to hear you. Open our eyes to see you. Soften our hearts to respond to you. Grow us day by day, transforming us into the image of your Son so that we can show his likeness to this world. Give us the compassion of Christ, the concern of Christ for others, the mission of Christ to bring your light into the world and scatter the darkness. Amen. Mm -hmm.